And then Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob later becomes what we know as Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel come from Jacob. But uh, in this moment right now, uh, we are at a point in Jacob's life uh, where Jacob is just coming across kind of a season of, of crisis. Um, he's about to go back home. He had left his family uh, because Jacob was kind of a schemer a little bit. And so he schemed to get his birthright from Esau. Esau was the firstborn. And then he schemed to get the blessing uh, that Esau deserved as well. And so Esau was obviously pretty furious about that. Um, and so Jacob took off, lived with his uncle uh, for a while, and then came back home. And as he was coming home, he remembered that uh, there was still this tension between him and Esau. And so uh, he wanted to go and let Esau know that he was coming, that he was coming back home, um, so that maybe he could appease uh, his brother and not uh, suffer his brother's wrath. So that's kind of where we're at right now in this story. In Genesis 32, starting in verse 3, says this. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, verse 3 says, it says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, that's his uncle, and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And Jacob's messengers returned to Jacob, saying, they said to him, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will be able to escape. So with that, let's go ahead and pray. Um, Father, thank you for uh, your word that you've given us this morning. Um, you say that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword uh, penetrating through bone and marrow. And so, Father, I ask this morning that you would use your word uh, to pierce our hearts, to form us more into the image of your Son. That as David prayed uh, to you, that we would pray as well, Father, that you would stir our affections for you, that you would open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word, that you would incline our hearts uh, to your commands and not to selfish gain. And then if you guys are willing, I just ask you to, to pray for yourself. Pray this morning that God would teach you something. And then if you could pray for me. I'm excited about this text, but I want it to be clear. I want it to be uh, helpful. Well, Father, we love you and uh, we trust you. Uh, please use this time, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, well, growing up, uh, I didn't really play a whole lot of team sports. Um, I did mostly individual things. So I did swimming uh, when I was uh, in middle school. I did taekwondo in high school. And so I didn't get a whole lot of experience in team sports uh, because, to be honest, my experience in team sports were not very good. Um, so the first team sport I played that kind of just marred uh, my mindset towards team sports was soccer. And I wasn't very good at soccer. Um, I wasn't very fast. I was kind of chunky. Um, I didn't like running. Uh, I didn't like sweating. And I wasn't very aggressive. 
But I had some friends who played soccer, and so I was like, well, I'll give it a shot, sure. And sure enough, I was that kid who was kind of always on the side of the field that was just kind of like walking back and forth as everybody else was running. And, uh, and one day, I was confessing to my parents that, uh, you know, they were asking me, like, Dane, why aren't you more aggressive? And I told them, I was like, well, I mean, whenever they pass me the ball, I just get really nervous. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, all of a sudden, all of these kids just start charging towards me, and I just get really terrified. Um, and my parents, God bless them, uh, said to me, they're like, well, if you get scared, just kick the ball out of bounds. I was like, that's genius. I was like, why didn't I not ever think of this before? And so sure enough, my next soccer game, uh, we're playing outside, and they pass me the ball, and I'm just like, boop, and out of bounds. And all of a sudden, the kids stopped running, right? And they just kind of left me there, and soccer was safe again, um, which was great. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, the summer season ended, and we moved to indoor soccer. And uh, all of a sudden, I had a problem. I was like, you can't kick the ball out of bounds anymore. Um, but there was something else that our coach introduced to us at that time, and it was the position of, not just the position of goalie, but the fact that the goalies got to wear these really cool long sleeve shirts and these gloves, and I was like, that just looks super awesome. Like, I want to be that guy. And then I don't have to run, I don't have to sweat, I can just kind of sit there and chill, and my team will do all the work. And so I tried out for goalie, I got the position of goalie, and soccer was fun again, right? Um... Until one fateful day where our team was playing what I can only describe to you as uh, like the, the Spartan 300 of the third grade indoor soccer team clubs. And uh, I remember walking onto the field and like these, these kids were just like otherworldly, right? Like they were fast, they were strong, they were intimidating. And uh, I was just like, y'all just, my team, like, y'all just better take this game yourselves because I'm just going to kind of sit back here and and hope that nothing bad happens. Um, But I remember, and this is burned into my memory, that their number one player, like their King Leonidas, their, their William Wallace, like of their team, he got the ball at one point. He broke past two defenders. And in that moment, I realized there is nothing but turf between him and me. And I just kind of sat there. I was like, I, I don't know what's. I just kind of just started praying, like, God, just strike him with lightning as he's coming down here because this is going to be really bad. And he just keeps charging at me, and I just keep shaking in my long sleeve shirt that was super comfortable. And he's coming at me, and I see his leg just cock back, and he just lets this ball rip, and it goes flying through the air, and it hits me right about here. And in that moment, I went from a bass to an alto in like half a second. Like, I'm like falling on the ground, like tears coming out of my eyes. Like, I'm screaming at my coach, like, take me out of the game. I don't want to play this anymore. This is miserable. And he, in compassion, yells back, if I take you out, you're not coming back in again. I was like, that's fine. I don't care. I quit soccer. I'm done. And uh, that was the last time I played soccer, actually. Um, So, now... Here's the thing. Why, why do I tell you guys that story this morning? I tell you that story because when we think about sports, we think about whether it's basketball, soccer, football, whatever it is, your sports are meant to be uh, something life-giving, right? Like they're meant to be enjoyable. They're meant to be fun. They should be something that you uh, enjoy going to. 
But in that moment, something that was meant to bring joy, was meant to bring happiness, was meant to bring fun into my life, brought pain and sadness and just anxiety. And I say that because I think a lot of times, for us, that's, that's what the Christmas holiday can be like. Is that we can look at this time right now where we're about to celebrate Christmas, right? The season of joy and giving and peace and life and, and happiness. And, and something that should be a source of peace. Something that should be life-giving, that should be joyful, that should be fun. I think can actually tend to, to actually bring more hurt and more pain and more sadness, and more stress, and more anxiety because of the family situations that we find ourselves in. Something that's meant to bring joy can actually be a source of of dread because maybe our family is not like the Brady Bunch. Our family is not the ideal, picture-perfect family unit. And so we find ourselves not looking forward to Christmas, but seeing it instead as just something to just kind of get through. Right? Our tendency is that family tensions can cause us to dread the season of joy. And if you're taking notes, that's the first thing I want you to write down, is that family tension can cause you to dread the season of joy. And this kind of dread, this kind of anxiety, this kind of nervousness is the same kind of emotional reaction that we see with Jacob and Esau here. That we see in Genesis 32, verses 6 and 7, and messengers... Return to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Well, like it's, it's been years since Jacob and Esau have seen each other. Like years since they've seen each other. Like this should be a moment to where brothers are reuniting, families are expanding. Like this should be a happy circumstance. This should be a joyous event. But what we see because of the history between these two brothers, that it's not that. It's one that's actually bringing a lot of dread and fear into Jacob's life. Right? Because the last thing we see Esau having said, documented in Genesis, the last thing we see Esau saying about Jacob is in Genesis 27, verse 41. And it says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Like, like that's the last thing that Jacob had remembered Esau saying. And so as Jacob is coming back home, being told by God, go back home. This is what's going through his head as he hears that Esau is on his way with 400 men with him. In a situation that, that should have been marked by excitement, by happiness, is marked instead with dread and with fear. And I think for the holidays, for some of us, this is how it can feel for us. Is that as we're approaching the holiday season, approaching Christmas, a season, a time that should be marked by happiness and rest and excitement is marked by dread and anxiety and something we're not really looking forward to. And it's like, it's like we think to ourselves, like, this is not how Christmas should be. This is not what I think of when I think of Christmas. Um, illustration of that um, uh, came from a buddy of mine in college. 
when uh, we were sharing stories about the worst Christmases ever uh, for us. And uh, a couple guys swapped some stories that were kind of like, eh, that's kind of a bummer, but you know, whatever. And, uh, and then my roommate gets up and he's like, well, one year, he's like, when I was five, I wanted a puppy for Christmas. And, uh, and so my parents, the night before, went out and got this puppy for me. And, uh, and I was asleep. I didn't even know that they got it. And uh, my dad thought to himself, like, well, let's go ahead and just put the dog in the uh, workshop shed in the backyard because it's, it's air-conditioned, it's heated, the dog will be fine, no big deal. Um, and we'll hide the dog in there, and then Christmas morning, we'll go out there, we'll surprise Adam, that's what his name was, uh, we'll surprise Adam with this puppy, and uh, it'll be awesome. Lo and behold, unfortunately, over the course of the night, there was a carbon monoxide leak in the shed. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and so the puppy didn't make it the whole night. Um, Adam goes into the shed the next morning, parents completely oblivious to what had happened. And he's just like poking the dog because the dog won't wake up. And in that moment, his dad like realized like what had just happened. He's like, oh no. And like grabs Adam and like pulls him away. And then Adam just says to us, he's like, yeah, so that's the year that my parents bought me a dead dog for Christmas. <laughs> I was like, man, Christmas should not be that way. Um, all right. And it's like, and, and, and that's, he, he laughs about it now. Um, but, it, but the idea of it is the same for us, that we can wake up on Christmas morning and not experience what we feel like we should experience. Right? We, should be, we should be getting together for dinner with family on Christmas Eve and not experience what we think we should experience because of the family tensions that go on, because our family is not a picture-perfect family. And I feel like we can't help but think to ourselves sometimes, like why, like, why not? Like, why can't that be me? When I start thinking about my family's friends and, like, they're probably all gathering together around a bunch of food and sharing jokes and laughing and, and having fun with each other and everybody's happy with one another and nobody's arguing and nobody's yelling and everybody's just enjoying the Christmas season. And we can think to ourselves, like, why can't that be my family? Like, why can't that be us? Christmas should not be the way that it is for me and our family. We can kind of catch ourselves thinking, like, why? Like, feeling as though, like, my family has stolen Christmas, right? Because of the family I'm in, the joy of Christmas has just been sapped. And my question this morning is, what do you, what do, you do with that? What do you do with that, that anxiety and that dread, because a lot of times, and this is the second point that I wanted to, wanted to bring up, is that a lot of times what we tend to do is we tend to just kind of make a plan and just struggle through it. Like I'm just going to kind of make a plan to handle this Christmas holiday, and we're just going to struggle through it. We're just going to push through it. It's only two days. It'll be over pretty soon. Like just make a plan and get through it. And this is the exact same thing we see with Jacob. That Jacob, his whole life was a, was a schemer. He was a planner. It's what his strengths were. And we see this uh, in his same reaction to Esau as Esau is coming to him with 400 men. We see Jacob's exact same reaction to, to plan and to figure something out to appease his brother. In Genesis 32, verse 7, and it says, He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will escape. And we kind of see his elaboration of this plan for the next seven or eight verses. But in verse 20, chapter 32, verse 20, we see what his motivation is. We see what his reasoning is. We see what he's trying to accomplish here. And in verse 20 he says, For he thought, I may appease him. Talking about Esau. 
with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps then he will escape. He will accept me. And we see Jacob just kind of jump into action of like, okay, what plan can I make? What sorts of things can we put in place? How can we appease him? Let's just kind of get through this situation, put a plan in in place, mitigate the disaster that might come, and we'll just kind of move forward. And, and, And don't get me wrong, planning is not a bad thing, right? Like there's nothing bad about making plans. Proverbs encourages you to make plans. It talks about with many advisors, there's wisdom, that there should be plans set in place as you go forward to pursue something. But, but what you see here with Jacob is that Jacob's hope is in his plan. And that what you eventually see is that it's not Jacob's plan that saves him. It's not Jacob's plan that saves him. You know, but, but so often we as Christians can find ourselves living just like Jacob that I've got a situation coming up that I'm not stoked about, I'm not really excited about, I'm just going to kind of make a plan and just kind of push through it and we'll get through this season. We'll talk about, okay, what family member is not going to talk to who? Who do we keep separate? What topics do not bring up? Do we not bring up the dinner table? Like, we'll make a plan in order to make sure that nobody gets offended over the Christmas table, right? But, but that's exactly what we see Jacob doing. And in all honesty, what tends to happen is what happened to me um, when uh, I, was, I was in grad school. I went out mountain biking with a friend of mine one time. And uh, we were mountain biking. And at one point, I wiped out. I can't remember what I did. It was something bad, though. I cut my leg up really bad. And I had the bright idea to post it on Facebook, um, to which case my mom then saw it, completely freaked out. And I got a phone call from my sister saying, Dane, don't ever post a bloody picture of yourself on Facebook again. Like, mom is pissed. Um, and so I was like, all right, noted. Um, but after that happened, I was like, man, I've been cut multiple times. I'll just put a Band-Aid on it, and we'll be good to go. So I did that. And then I went to a Christmas party that night and realized after maybe like two, not even two hours, like an hour, that there was just this dark stain on my jeans. I was like, what in the world is that? So I looked up, and sure enough, that Band-Aid was just like covered in blood. Like it was just everywhere. And uh, in that moment, I was like, my plan to put a bandit on this and just kind of move on with life did not work. And, and I say that, I give that story for this reason, because I think a lot of times the plans that we make in order to try to push through situations that we don't like are just like that. That we'll, we'll put a band-aid on it, thinking like, okay, this will solve the problem, this will bring peace into the situation, but the whole time it just keeps bleeding. And you can't get it to stop. And it doesn't really do anything to restore joy or happiness or anything like that. We, we put our faith in the plans that we make, but ultimately it's not the plans that save us, and it's not the plans that saved Jacob. It never really brings peace into your life. It's just something we kind of just struggle through. And this is what Jacob was doing his, his entire life, was just struggling just planning and struggling. This is kind of why you see in the text, you see immediately in between Jacob kind of making all these plans and then Jacob meeting Esau, you kind of see him have this really weird moment where he wrestles with God. And we just kind of look at that, we're like, that's just our Bible being weird. Like, I don't understand why this goes here, but like, we'll just kind of skip over that and go to the next part. Um, But the reason the author has that moment there is to communicate something to you. It's to communicate the fact that this is Jacob's M.O., Like, this is what he does. He is a struggler. 
In Genesis 32, verse 24, it says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And this idea of, uh, of prevailing in this struggle was the overarching theme in Jacob's life, that he was, a, he was a planner, he was a schemer, he was a struggler. You see him doing it with Esau, you see him doing it with his uncle Laban, you see him doing it with God. And it's meant to communicate the fact that this is not, and what we see in the story is that this is not ultimately what brings peace and what brings prosperity into Jacob's life. It's not his plans that save him. Although we can tend to make plan after plan after plan, thinking if I just plan enough, then it'll work out. But plans don't bring peace. Planning can alleviate stress. Planning can make things go a little more fluidly sometimes. But, but planning doesn't have the power to control a situation. Like we had a, we had a phrase when, uh, when I would do uh, training in RTC for the Army. It's like you make your plan to assault a bunker or you know, whatever it is, is. But it's like as soon as that first bullet goes, what they would always tell us, like your plan just goes out the window. Because plans don't have the ability to control a situation. The only thing a plan can do is to try to mitigate disaster. Plans don't control situations. Plans only mitigate disaster. You, you need something else. When you need to struggle through a situation, you have a situation coming at you that seems to be sapping the joy out of your Christmas season. You don't need something to merely mitigate disaster. You need something else. You need something bigger than just mitigation. You need something that can control a situation. You need someone, and that's why the third point I want you guys to write down is, is that peace is found in praying God's promises is that peace, true peace, is found in praying God's promises. If you look at uh, Genesis 39, 32, sorry, 32, verse 9, it's really funny because at the end of the day, it, it, it was really, it was Jacob's prayer that saved him. It wasn't Jacob's plan. And so if you look at verse 9 and 32, it says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And then Jacob says, he says but you said, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. It wasn't, it wasn't Jacob's plan that ultimately saved him from the hand of Esau. It was God's response to Jacob's prayer that led to just this radical, miraculous change of Esau's heart. Where the last thing we saw Esau talking about Jacob with was that, hey, 
as soon as the days of mourning my father are over, I'm going to kill this guy. I don't care if he's my brother or not. He's dead. And then the next thing we see happening with Esau is Genesis 33, 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Like in, in all of this turmoil and fear and anxiety that Jacob, been, that Jacob had been feeling, God's sovereign, miraculous restoration of Esau's life and of their friendship is what saved him. The craziest thing, it's so funny, the craziest thing is that Jacob's plan like wasn't even needed. Like he didn't even need it. In Genesis 33 verse 8, Esau said to him, he's like, what do you mean by all of this company that I met? And Jacob answered, well, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I've got enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Like, like Jacob's plan wasn't even needed. Like he brings all of this stuff to Esau, and Esau's like, hey, man, I've got enough. Like, don't worry about it. And he's just like, like, how else do you explain that other than the radical conversion done by a sovereign and loving God? It was not Jacob's plan that saved him. It was, it was Jacob's prayer to God. It was God's faithfulness to Jacob. Peace for Jacob became, came to him because of God's promise to him. It was God's promise that led to peace in Jacob's life to protect him and to do him good. And as followers of Jesus, we have that same promise. We have that exact same promise promise. In Romans 8, 28, Paul is saying, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, peace doesn't come from your plan. And plans aren't bad. I'm a huge planner. I like to plan. But peace doesn't ultimately come from your plan. It comes from God's plan. Peace comes from God's plan. Now, now here's the thing. Maybe you're not dreading Christmas this year. Maybe for you, family time is awesome, and you love spending time with one another. And if that's the case, praise be to God. That is awesome. But I think for a lot of people, that's not the case, is that it's not something we look forward to. And if that's you this morning, what I want to encourage you in this morning is to remember God's faithfulness as shown in the story of Jacob and Esau. Is to remember God's faithfulness as shown in the story of Jacob and Esau. We don't rest our hope on plans. We rest our hope on the loving promises of a father who has promised to take care of us, to watch over us, even when we don't understand how things work out. And instead of, 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 of worrying and of struggling through a situation, we're called to preach God's promises to find peace. We're called to preach God's promises to find peace. Jacob was led to safety because of the promise that God had made to him. Esau's heart was changed because of the promise that God had made to, to Jacob. It, it's God's control over the situation that ultimately brought peace into Jacob and Esau's relationship. And as followers of Jesus, that's where our peace comes from. We don't look to find peace in what we can muster up or what we can put together. We look to find peace in the God who calls himself the Prince of Peace. That's where we're called to look. Because your plans are, are not sufficient to bring peace. 
Plans can, can mitigate disaster, but they can't orchestrate outcome. Plans can mitigate disaster, but they, they're not able to orchestrate outcome. And the reason I wanted to, to preach this message this morning is because this is at the very heart of what we remember during Christmas. In the year uh, 740, around 740 BC is what we kind of, uh, we've um, determined that this is uh, uh, through dates and understanding that this happened. But uh, when Jerusalem was about to be attacked by Assyria because of idolatry. And you look about, you read about this in the book of Isaiah, that Assyria was coming in to destroy Jerusalem because of all the idolatry that was there. There was, a, there was about to be a whole lot of tension in that place for people who followed Yahweh and for people who didn't follow Yahweh. It didn't matter. There was about to be a lot of tension, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And in the midst of that, Isaiah gets up. In Isaiah verse, chapter 9, verses 6, he, he preaches a promise of hope. And it's the promise of hope that we hear so often in this Christmas season. Because in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, he says, For to us... A child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's where peace comes from for the Christian. And what's so interesting, that word peace here in, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, we tend to define peace in terms of just the absence of, uh, of stress or of a, a lack of stress or a lack of anxiety is how we tend to define the word peace. We think about, do you have peace? We're like, well, yeah, I've got peace if I'm not stressed out or I'm not anxious about something. But the Hebrew word for peace actually encompasses much, much more than that. Um, and you've probably heard it, but it's the Hebrew word shalom. The Hebrew word shalom is what we translate in English as peace. But this word shalom carries a whole deeper meaning to it. There's much more depth to the word shalom because the word shalom actually means not just the lack of stress or the lack of anxiety, but the word shalom means almost a bringing things back to the way that they were meant to be. That's what the word shalom means, is that, is that things are brought back to the way they were meant to be, that things are as they should be be. That's what this word is meaning when he's saying the prince of peace. And we can get so caught up in the Christmas season because we can look at our situation with our family and think to ourselves, like, this is not how Christmas should be. And we're right to feel that way. Like, I'm not telling you that you're wrong. Like, you are right to feel that way. Because what you're longing for is peace. You're longing for things to be brought back to the way that they should be. You feel as though things are not how they should be, and you're right to feel that way. But what I want you to look at here is what Isaiah says this prince of peace, this child is going to bring at the beginning of verse 7. This is so, this is so interesting. The first time I saw this, it, just, it blew my mind. Because he says, in verse 7, he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The increase of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Like it's not a it's not a static peace. It's not just like I'm gonna look at the situation and then just like poof, everything's back the way it should be. It's not like that. It's, it's that there is this constant increasing of things becoming more and more and more and more as the way in which they should be. It's, it's an exponential growth of peace. 
And that's what Isaiah is prophesying that this child will bring, the exponential growth of peace. It's, uh, if I could illustrate it this way, uh, my parents came down yesterday. They're staying with my wife and I for the next uh, few days for Christmas. And as a Christmas gift, they uh, brought my dog a squeaky toy, which if you've ever met my dog, um, she just loses her mind at squeaky toys. Um, like she's sitting on a couch one day just like half dead. Um, and you give her a squeaky toy and like her ears just perk up and she looks up and she's looking to find it. And I promise you, she has like not stopped squeaking that toy since they brought it here. Just constantly. And she's smart too. Like she looks at the parts of the toy that have the squeaker in them and she only squeaks those parts. And, and I was thinking about that the other day and I was like, you know, it's funny to take a squeaky toy and give it to my dog and just see how, much, how excited that she gets. And that's, that's pretty cool. But if tomorrow I went out and I got two squeaky toys and I gave that to her, like the amount of excitement that would be there, she would probably almost lose her mind. And then the next day I went and got four squeaky toys and brought that to her, like she probably wouldn't even know what to do with it. And the next day I got 16 and after that I got 32. Like this is exponential growth of squeaky toys. And the joy that would be bursting from my dog's heart would probably kill her. Um, but... That's the picture of what Isaiah is saying here. It is exponential growth of peace. And that for the Christian is where our peace rests. Our peace doesn't rest in in making a plan that's going to mitigate disaster. Our peace rests in a person who orchestrates outcomes. Our peace rests in the prince of of peace. And he doesn't guarantee that your life is perfect once you become a Christian. We all can testify to that. But what he does guarantee is that as you walk through that dark season, as you walk through that period where things are not as they should be, he promises to be your peace in that. He promises to be your hope in that. Christians all throughout history have been most strongly marked by having an abnormal sense of peace in the midst of chaos. To where it it doesn't make sense. I had a a professor in in grad school um, that uh, at at the end of the day, he was kind of a quirky guy. Um, But at the end of the day, one class period, uh, a, a student got up, and this was when there was a lot of, I don't know, there was a lot of just political craziness that was going on at the time, and a lot of stress and anxiety, and people were worrying about stuff. Um... And this student gets up and they asked our professor, like, you know, how, what is, is, what's the future look like? And I don't remember why they even came up with that question, but they asked it. And uh, I'll just, I never forget what my, what my professor said. He said, uh, he said to us very, very bluntly and very straight to the point, he's like, oh, the future's bright. And we just kind of all kind of like paused there for a second. He said this to us. He said, Christians thrive in chaos. He's like, we don't do so well in prosperity. He's like, Christians do great under persecution. They don't do so well under prosperity. And what he meant, what he meant by that was saying, like, this, this has been a mark of Christians throughout history, is that because of this hope and this faith that you have in the Prince of Peace, you are able to navigate difficult situations with a sense of peace and a sense of hope, that nothing you ever walk through is hopeless or is beyond bringing things back to the way that they were meant to be. As I, every time, every Sunday when I get up to preach to our students, 
Um, this is probably pretty common for preachers. I've, I don't think I've ever met a preacher who didn't uh, feel this way. But there's always this anxiety of, like, I need to get up. I need to say something that's going to be helpful. Like, I want our church to be benefited by the words of Scripture. Like, I want God to look awesome. And so there can be a lot of weight of, like, i got to say the right thing. i got to do the right thing. i got to have the right illustration. It's going to be clear enough. Like, all this stuff. And, uh, and that anxiety comes pretty regularly before preaching and even this morning. Um, but one of the things I learned pretty early on was this right here, was this principle right here that, at the end of the day, when you're walking through stressful situations, you have to have something to lean onto. You have to have something to trust in. You've got to have a promise from God that brings peace. And so every Sunday, just about before I preach, I will always remind myself of Isaiah 55.11. Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish all that I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Every Sunday, I will preach that to myself and remind myself of that. Or remind myself of John 15, 5, where Jesus said, like, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so therefore, I go to God in prayer. I'm like, God, I need you to do something here. I want your word to be beneficial to your people. I want you to stir our hearts for you. I in myself don't have the ability to do that. It doesn't matter how clearly I speak. It doesn't matter how funny I am. It doesn't matter how good my illustrations are or my stories are. None of that matters because at the end of the day, that won't change hearts. That won't change hearts. And so I need something else to trust in. And so I remind myself that God has said, hey, every single time my word goes out, it goes out intentionally on purpose. And I will always accomplish what I intend to accomplish when my word goes out. And I remind myself of that. And I can breathe easy. As we step into Christmas this year, I want to encourage you all to to preach God's promises to yourself. When you encounter times where you're anxious or stressed or worried or you're overcome with this this grief of just like, why isn't Christmas more like my friends' families' Christmases that just seem so perfect, I want you to remember the promises that God gives us because it's his promises that bring peace. Last story I wanted to share this morning. If you've seen um, the movie Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, probably, uh, if you've never seen those three movies, great thing to spend over Christmas. Um, But the two towers is probably my favorite one because at the end of it, there's this scene where one of the main characters, Aragorn, they're in this really, really bad battle. um, And this castle is about to be taken over by the enemy. um, And in this moment, they're all locked in this kind of like room. And uh, and Aragorn is looking out the window. And King Theoden, the king of this this castle, kind of has this just dreary look on his face, this look of hopelessness. And Aragorn, in that moment, remembers to himself something that another one of the main characters, Gandalf, had said to him. He said, hey, on the 10th day, I want you to look to the east at the rising of the sun. And in that moment, you just kind of see this this thematic pause. And Aragorn's demeanor changes because he remembered the promise of of this uh, wizard that was his friend. And, and, and that's a picture of what it looks like for us when you are in this dreary situation, this situation that you don't want to be in, you're just going to kind of plan and struggle through. You have to have promises to remind yourself of the peace that God brings. Some of the promises that I've used over the years, Romans 8, 28, like we said before. 
Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And then Jesus said in John 16.22, So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And so as we move into this Christmas season, I want to encourage you all, don't look to your plans to find peace. Look to the the Prince of Peace, who brings exponential growth of peace. As we read, for to us a child is born, to us A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, uh, this morning, um, as we... uh, as we're looking to tomorrow, as we're looking to the day after uh, tomorrow, God, whether that's a time for us to where we're really looking forward to it, we're looking forward to the conversations and the, and the, uh, the time with family, God, or, or whether or not it's something to where the holiday seems to bring more uh, dread, more hurt than actual peace and joy in life. Father, I pray that in this season we would remember the promises that you've given us that your spirit would move inside of us and, and give us hope and joy in the midst of darkness and, and dread and sadness. Because, Father, ultimately you are a God who orchestrates outcomes. That you came as a baby and you grew and you became a man who gave your life for us, that you took on flesh so that the exponential growth of peace, bringing things back to the way that they should be, could be accomplished, Father. We praise you and give you all the glory, our hope, our peace, and our joy. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.